Welcome to the Shifting Our Schools podcast, where we believe learning never stops. We create innovative and flexible professional development opportunities that support the current research and thinking in education today. This week's podcast episode aspires to set you up to take another step forward on your personal learning journey. Now here's your host, Jeff Udick. Hi, Jeff. I'm so excited to be chatting with you. I was really sad that you missed out on this conversation with Natalie Nahai, but I know that when you're listening back to it, it's going to be a conversation that you appreciate because Natalie talks about how important it is that we become introspective, that we think really critically about what our values are and how they drive the work that we do, not just as individuals, but in our communities too. She's got this great resource. It's called The Values Map. It's a free resource. She talks about why it was important to her that she was sharing that freely. Uh, Folks can explore that in the show notes. And uh, The Values Map quote, I'm quoting from the site, is designed to help you identify, develop, and communicate the psychological values your business represents and what it strives to achieve for its employees, customers, and the wider world. And this would be an incredible exercise for schools to go through as well, I think. And I think one of the things we're hearing, you know, with with all of these guests that we've been having on lately is this, the importance of psychological safety. And it's so interesting. Just the other day, I was putting together a presentation and I was looking back at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which every educator knows from Human Development 101 back in the day, right? Psychological safety is at the very bottom of Maslow's hierarchies. And it's very fascinating that we find ourselves in 2022 having conversations with people in the business world, having conversations with uh, uh, entrepreneurial and, and business leaders who are all really focused right now on this idea of psychological safety uh, coming out of the pandemic and just looking forward to what what does the future hold for work, for education, uh, for us as humans. So I, I just find that as an interesting theme that seems to be popping up uh, in, our, in our interviews lately. Uh, me too. The other one that stands out is how important a holistic education is. Natalie will talk about how um, really a, a crucial element to her trajectory was being able to pull from a variety of different interests, right? And how it wasn't just thinking about, okay, I only like this one thing, but that she was nurtured and encouraged from a variety of directions. And Jeff, I know you're also familiar with Natalie's podcast, The Hive Podcast. This is also a really successful show. We've had a few guests on talking about the power of podcasting as their own learning tool. And I know you and I feel like hosting a podcast is its own professional learning, and we're always nudging and encouraging people to think about creating their own podcast. Listeners, if that's you, just a reminder that we do have a a, a self-paced course on sale to help you get started with hosting a podcast. It might be a program that is just for you. Maybe it's your PLC's podcast. Maybe it's a podcast that you put together with students. Uh, but I, I just I want to give a shout out to the power of podcasting and how we have so much to do, so much to learn from that process. Yeah. And so you, of course, you can find that course uh, over at shiftingschools.com. And again, The Hive is an, an amazing podcast. And, and if you are thinking about becoming a podcast or your own professional development, we go on and on about podcast PD here at Shifting Schools, you know, and expand outside. Like, I hope that you're listening to podcasts outside of education. You know, there's a lot of things we can take from from these uh, entrepreneurs and people in, in different 
different fields that we can bring back into education to make sure that we're just aligning. I think that's one thing that, that is coming through is like, is education aligning with what the future of work looks like, what the future of college looks like, what the future looks like for this generation as we continue to prepare students for their future and not our past. So I'm, I'm excited for this. I'm excited for you all to get to hear from Natalie. And with that, on with the show. Thank you so much for coming on the Shifting Our Schools podcast. It's a great honor to get to speak with you. Uh, for listeners who might not be familiar, I'm just going to quote from your bio for a moment here. A favored speaker, consultant, and facilitator to Fortune 500 companies, you've lectured at some of the world's most prestigious institutes, from Cambridge to UCL universities to London Holt Business Schools. Your experience as a skilled communicator has seen you present at South by Southwest. You've hosted the Guardian Changing Media Summit, um, and you hold main stage interviews at the Web Summit. I'm wondering, as you look back on your formative years, where did your interest in ethics, persuasive tech, human be behavior really come from? Can you kind of isolate a few <laughs> moments early on where you knew this was going to be uh, the pathway for you? Um, well, first, thank you so much for the lovely introduction, and it's a pleasure to be speaking with you. Um, so I think one of the things that um, that often one asks when you end up down a certain trajectory in life is, you know, did you did you figure out that you'd get here when you started out? The short answer is no. Uh, although I do have different kind of trainings and different aspects that I now weave together. So I did train in psychology. I did a psychology BSc. I then trained in website design and development. Um, I've performed for many years as a musician. So that's the kind of the performance angle. Both my parents were teachers. So that's possibly the teaching influence coming in. And it was really after I'd spent some time pursuing music in my 20s that I thought it was probably a good time to figure out how to make some money and um, drawing on the things that I knew I could do to a certain extent. It was the question of how do I combine you know, my skills in psychology and speaking, um, my love of the English language and you know, my love for the design and development of websites, which might sound quite nerdy, but that's kind of it was in the mix. Is there a way to combine these things? And after quite a bit of kind of thinking and meeting people in the burgeoning co-working spaces that were happening in London it was about 10 years ago, I started thinking, well, maybe there's something about virtual environments that shape our behavior because we know that physical spaces do actually influence how we behave. And I couldn't find anything on it. This was back in 2010. UX wasn't yet a term that started to surface around 2011, 2012. And so I naively thought I will write a book that combines the things that I would like to read about, um, drawing from disparate fields of, of study and research and create something that's hopefully a how-to manual, um, at least as a foundation of what you might want to think about if you're designing a website or interacting with people online. And so that was kind of what led me to that point. And then the book writing process was very full on and intense, but the speaking part is something which um, I really enjoy and being in conversation with people, facilitating, interviewing, also talking at people, but I prefer when it's kind of more of a reciprocal exchange. Uh, but that's kind of how I ended up on the trajectory that I find myself today. Is that a <laughs> fulfilling enough answer? Yeah, and I think it's a, a really great message. You know, our audience being educators, we talk all the time about how significant it is to have sort of an interdisciplinary focus to make sure that subject fields don't seem isolated. You know, you're mm. only using this mindset in this one given place. 
So that's a great, great message. Um, you also, of course, host the Hive podcast. Listeners, that will be linked over there in the show notes. It's almost reached its 100th episode. <laughs> Congratulations on that. Um, when we had Dory Clark on the podcast a few weeks back, I think she pointed out that the statistic is most people don't even make it past their fifth episode. That's uh, <laughs> the experience for the majority of podcasts. So. <laughs> Um, again, congratulations. Is there a specific conversation conversation that you would point new listeners to that you think is um, sort of a, a great introduction to the topics and themes you are interested in? Mm. So, I mean, the, the podcast itself is um, intentionally quite broad. It's something that kind of allows us to look into the lens of our relationship with ourselves and society, with technology, and then with the wider web of life. So you can kind of take it in any direction you want. But one of my favorite ones, and especially for folks listening and thinking about how we might charter a path forward to a more flourishing future, especially when there's so much uncertainty and it feels like the, the rule book, if ever there was one, and I think there were certain guidelines that we could have predicted would be useful when our parents were in their careers, but now no longer really apply. Um, with that in mind, one of the conversations that I most enjoyed was by this with this wonderful chap called Alan Watson Featherston, um, who's now in his, I think he's in his, his 70s, and he's an extraordinary example of a life well-lived in which at a young age, he was very interested in conservation efforts. He didn't have much in the way of resources, didn't have much money, didn't have any land. Um, and yet through perseverance and a vision about what he would like to have been possible, he managed to bring people into partnership and collaboration to help protect vast swathes of the Scottish Highlands and has managed to, to kind of, I guess, inspire and create a roadmap for future generations to build upon his work. So he's someone that I would definitely recommend uh, listening to. He's a very inspiring person, very humble guy, um, and has, has done some extraordinary, extraordinary things with his life. So maybe start there if you, if you like the sound of that. That sounds like a, a great episode to start with. Uh, and I really like, again, how you're featuring some of the, you know, so-called soft skills that have enabled him to get to where he is. Um, mm. You know, again, we've we've questioned that a few times on this show that, um, you know, does the connotation of the word soft kind of belittle how <laughs> powerful and important these skills are? So that sounds like another episode that will be a great provocation for questioning <laughs> that. As someone who is clearly an established thought leader, what does that title mean to you? Um, and even though now, you know, present day, you have this huge list of clients that you can point to, could you tell us a bit more about something from the behind the scenes journey that um, maybe folks don't recognize when they see <laughs> the successful version of you here today? Um, what were some of the steps that were crucial milestones that um, others might not have recognized were so key in you getting to the place you're at now. It's still, I still kind of, I don't know if you get this as well, but um, when people sort of talk about success and thought leadership, I really, I don't really feel like that when I <laughs> when I step onto a stage. I, I don't know if it's to do with um, my ideas about what that looks like, or you know, it's kind of like when people become adults and we've got to adult. And actually, you feel like a bit more of a kid on the inside. So I think one of the things there is also, um, and it kind of comes in to answer the second part, is no matter how you feel about how other people perceive you, uh, and as you you know build a list of clients or a CV, um, I think one of the most important things is to be checking in that you actually enjoy and find stimulating the work that you're doing. 
And that has been a really good orienting question for me, which is, and especially if you're someone who's got lots of strings to your blow. And, and earlier you're talking about people having a much more interdisciplinary approach. So I think there's a question there, which I'm really interested in around integration and how do we show up as the kind of more orchestral version of ourselves than we are, rather than just letting the fiddler or the kind of, I don't know, the timpani player of our uh, selves come out. So this idea of how can you bring more of yourself or selves to the, to the process? And so I think the first thing is figuring out what it is that stimulates you so that when it comes to persevering, and that's one of the things that people don't often necessarily see, especially if, you know, like me, a lot of my work is done solitarily. So the book writing, which I find actually a really grueling process, it's the bit after I like. So there's a point around perseverance. And if you're struggling or persevering for something which, you know, you believe in or that you know that there's going to be a really beautiful outcome at some part in the process, because there's always going to be parts that we find less enjoyable. If you're struggling for something that you enjoy, that you love, it helps you to stay committed. Um, I think the other thing as well is, is asking for help. I've been so, so lucky, uh, especially in the early days, that I had a network of amazing people who were very supportive, happy to help, eager to champion, open doors. And I think one of the things that's really useful if you're thinking about starting out and you've got some sense of what it is that you want to be doing, even if it's not an exact sense. So it could be something like, I want to be on stage talking to people about the power of, let's say, soft skills and changing minds about what that actually means. Okay. It doesn't mean that you have to know what industry you're going to be doing it in, which country or what events, but you've got a sense of what it is that you want to do, what the territory looks like. And if you start asking people about how they'd help you to get there or what insights they might give and you become clearer and clearer on what that looks like and then you repeat it enough times it's amazing how quickly that kind of vision um, and the possibilities that enable you to go further along that path will crystallize so there is something there that's quite a basic suggestion around envisioning crystallizing the vision of it repeating what it is that you want and asking people if they have advice for you and that opens so many doors um, yeah that's beautiful. And that really resonates deeply with the work that we do at Shifting Our Schools. We have a series of, of resources that look at this notion of intellectual humility and recognize that for many folks, that's not been a part of our education, just in terms of advocating for self when we need help, as well as just getting really comfortable admitting, I don't know more. Um, mm. And that, as you say, in fact, that is a very good thing to do, um, getting curious about some of our, our gaps in understanding and awareness are really useful. Uh, so thank you so much for, for mentioning that. In an interview with you from 2021, again, we'll make sure to include the full interview in the show notes. You talk about your research and you say, quote, what gives me hope is the fact that even under hard conditions, younger folks have shown that they are more committed than ever to holding businesses, organizations, and brands to account at the end that they will spend their money on securing the more regenerative future they deserve, end quote. Um, and that's related to a tool you've developed. Again, the link, listeners, is in the show notes entitled The Values Map. For our listeners who might be teaching entrepreneurship and business, can you talk more about how that tool could be used with learners and why conversations about values in the business world are perhaps more important now than ever before? Mm. Great question. Um, so, yeah, so let's talk. I'll give a couple of examples of some of the stats that kind of inform 
the statement that I made. Um, so when you're looking at ways in which consumer behavior is changing, and I'm looking through the lens of consumption, but obviously we're all at some point in our lives consuming, whether it's to buy food or clothing or what have you. And I think that when we think about consumer behaviors, we're actually looking at deeper human social behavioral trends. So when you're thinking about younger generations, so Gen Z, for instance, who are already starting to enter the workforce, we know that the majority of them, according to one study, it was up to 62% much prefer buying from sustainable brands. And we already saw that with the millennial cohort. When it comes to millennials, around 40% state that they will accept one job offer over another simply due to a company's environmental credentials, even if it means taking a pay cut. So with them, we're sort of starting to think, okay, when it comes to motivation, is there a conversation to be had about whether the extrinsic motivation, the money, the status, the promotion versus the intrinsic stuff? Am I living up to my values? Do I feel a sense of connection and belonging with the people I'm with? You know, what's the interplay between these two things? And I think from the research that I've read and the conversations I've had with people in this space, it seems to me that we are seeing a trend towards more what you might call like eudaimonic, so self-actualizing forms of engaging with brands, working for businesses, buying, et cetera. And so when we think about, well, how can we either as you know businesses or brands or organizations, how can we unpack that and then create opportunities for people to live into their potential? Values is a really powerful way of understanding for ourselves what it is that drives us. And if you're a brand, understanding what are the predictors of consumer choice. If you're a business, understanding how best to attract the talent that you want to be able to attract and retain. And so thinking about values, there are various frameworks you can look at. One of the most wonderful frameworks, because it's very robust, it's been tested over a long time, is Schwartz's framework around basic human values. And so I write about this in Business Unusual in the most recent book. And because it's quite complicated, um, I wanted to collaborate with Dr. Kiki Leutner of Goldsmiths University to, to design a tool. It's a free tool. So basically, you know, my vested interest is I want to make sure that some of my work has a positive impact in the world. And this makes that translatable. But it's a free tool, a 40-point questionnaire based on Schwartz's theory and his principles and his framework. And you can go through it and it will give you kind of playfully a sense of archetype, but actually where the real feedback and juice and interesting stuff is, is in the detailed feedback you get about what your answers say about what drives your values as a business. So it's for organizations, not for individuals particularly. But if you want to know what is it that drives my business, how can I express these values throughout my communication, in the strategy, in the organization, it gives you feedback on how to do that. And it shows you other companies that share similar values. So you've got some real life examples to look to. So um yeah, I would I would point towards that and give me feedback as to what you think. So yeah, that that's really great. You know, and again, I I think just the young folks who we work with, they don't necessarily have the choice to, you know, be separate from the world of advertising and brands. You know, just simply by nature of social media, it's so much more integrated into our day to day lives. I, I came across a stat a, a while ago that the average kindergarten student in the U.S. can identify fifty logos just by wow. kindergarten age. And how many plants and trees by comparison? <laughs> right. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yes, that's um, that's that's dark, but it's a good point. And so I I really appreciate you talking about ways in which. Um, we can think critically about it and that 
values can be a driver, but we we need to also get curious about where they are and not just assume that. I, you know, I'm thinking even that would be a very interesting exercise for schools to do about themselves. Totally. Um, so thank you so yeah. much for sharing that. <laughs> for young entrepreneurs or teachers of entrepreneurship, who are you looking at in terms of um, you know some, a brand, a company, an organization that's having communication best practices? What questions and conversations do you think we need to give more priority to when we you know think and look critically at the ways in which brands are trying to reach consumers today? So there's one brand in particular that I have um, come across recently. They've been around for a while. They're based in France. And it is, um, they've created an app called Yuka, Y-U-K-A. And what they do is they allow you to scan cosmetics and food products um, so that you can get a sense of what actually goes into that item. So it could be, let's say, factor 50 SPF sun protection for your for your skin, for your face, or it could be a bottle of you know ketchup or whatever it is that you want to scan. And what's really interesting about this is that it breaks down everything that's gone into that product, including all of the harmful uh, compounds, preservatives. It links to the papers and the research that give them the context to be able to say this chemical is hazardous, et cetera. And it gives that product a rating. So you've got the worst products, which score zero, and the best products, which score 100. And it basically allows people the skills and the agency to be able to rapidly make decisions and make sense of a very complex set of you know, inputs to be able to live according to their values. So I value sustainability. I can't always buy in a sort of a sustainable way. If I go and I, I scan the products in my fridge, I'll know which brands are the ones that are better for the planet and better for my body. And so I can then avoid the ones that aren't. And so this particular brand, the reason I'm highlighting it is because increasingly, I think, if we are interested in buying from brands that help us to live into our potential, there has to be a track record of, you know, what are they actually doing? Do they enact their values rather than just give it lip service and then don't follow through? And apps like this, their communication piece is literally about giving the person the agency to make those choices in real time. And so they're not being loud. They're not being brash. They're literally just creating a market through word of mouth by virtue of the fact that they're doing something that people need and they're making people's lives easier. So I think there's something there around not having to kind of step up to the soapbox and preach far and wide that if you have a quality product that is based in very specific values and you're able to maintain integrity, and for this, there's like a, a quick framework that I think is really important. Um, I can go through it briefly if you wish. But if you can express integrity, then that will really amplify the communication and make it much more resonant because people can trust you. Um, so if we're thinking about assessing any organization, have they made a commitment to, ex to a certain set of explicit values? Are they congruent in word and deed? Do they say and do what they say they're going to do, et cetera? Are they consistent over time? Do they build a track record so that when things go wrong, they can say, okay, this person or this brand has shown up time and again in alignment with these values. We'll forgive them this error because we all are. Uh, and finally, are they coherent in intention and behavior? Are they doing the right thing for the right reasons? And sometimes that means taking a hit to your profits or it means going in at personal cost. So commitment, congruence, consistency and coherence, showing that integrity. And that will just give life to your uh, communication in a way that cheap marketing tactics simply can't compete. And, uh, you know, as you say, it, it does just seem like – 
the young folks in my life certainly are educating themselves in a way about brands that when I was that age, I was not even thinking about. Mm. Um, so it, it almost seems like big brands, big organizations no longer, you know, have the option if they do want to succeed. Mm. And I, and I love that piece of, you know, that's a, it's an amazing resource. Thank you so much. We will, <laughs> we will track that down and throw that in the show notes as well. It reminds me of an exercise that we've done with teachers before where we sort of coach them through a way to help their students co-author a mission statement for their class. Um, and we look at a variety of, of different organizations to see what their mission statement is. And it's every time we do this exercise, <laughs> um, sometimes we will just pick, you know, what is a local sports team uh, for that city or, or for that state? Or we've looked at, um, because I'm a big uh, WNBA women's basketball fan. Oh, amazing. WNBA, right. And um, it, it's not necessarily what you think it is going to be, or another brand that always, I think, can be surprising to some folks in terms of how driven they are by their values is Ben and Jerry's ice cream. I oh, love that one. Yes. Because it gives yeah. me the excuse to eat Ben and Jerry's, right? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. But I love that exercise of just looking at a few different samples and seeing how that language has changed and how I think, you know, companies are trying to humanize their message. But as you say, too, that integrity piece is recognizing that sometimes we aren't going to get it right. Mm. Um, and how do we have that conversation about writing that wrong? Um, and, and also just letting folks know this, you know, this brand, this company has humans behind it. Mm. And I think there's a compassion piece there as well, because, you know, one of the things that I think maybe this is more of a broad um, topic right now, as well as when, whenever we're trying to make social change happen, I think for whatever reason at this moment in time, we expect the models of that change to be infallible beyond reproach. And everyone has a different version about what perfectionism is anyway. So we can't compare or agree on a comparison that we all agree with to begin with. But I think there's this sense of if you don't live up to this 100% ideal of being ethical or sustainable or whatever it is, then the tendency in social platforms certainly is to tear that model or that person or that brand down. And of course, that doesn't create an environment in which people can feel free to make change and make mistakes and grow and take risks. And so I think there's, I'm particularly interested in this, this capacity that we have for compassionately looking at our shortcomings and then extending that compassion to others and saying, okay, you messed up. What are we going to do about it? This. Um, and there has to be, there has to be an acknowledgement that mistakes are going to happen. You know, relationships are messy. We're all messy. We're inconsistent in ourselves. And, and that's part of what it is just to be alive, right? It's kind of part of the human experience. So I think humanizing brands as well and realizing, as you so beautifully put, that a brand is made up of people and that, you know, we have to therefore extend um, a more compassionate hand to those people. I think that's a really important thing that, that often people don't think about. Like we see the brand and we forget the faces. Mm, yes. And you know, you're making me think too about how that dynamic in a way has also sparked a conversation about what an authentic apology is, mm. um, what that looks like. You know, I'm, I'm thinking of July is uh, Disability Pride Month. And, um, you know, this was sort of a very big deal in my social media feed where Lizzo's fans sort of held her to account about a lyric. And she actually went about changing the lyric, re-recording mm. the song and sort of the dialogue there 
again, because consumers and fans have a voice in ways that decades ago we did not, mm -hmm. just that exchange was so interesting. And a lot of folks did say, this is what a quality apology is. So I wonder mm -hmm. if even, you know, brands are having deeper conversations about um, <laughs> what will it mean to apologize mm -hmm. to our, you know, consumers, to our stakeholders. Um, and, and certainly, I, again, I feel like young folks are better equipped to be thinking about authenticity in apology versus just someone shrugging it off and being mm. like, oh, well, if your feelings were hurt, that's on you kind of a thing. Mm. And there's something there about, you know, people really show up when when things hit the fan. The way that you cope with it shows a lot about who you want to be in the world. Like if you if you make a mistake, so for instance, this example with Lizzo, it's so much easier in some ways to just turn away and not want to face into the discomfort or the judgment and the shame, especially if you're a public figure, especially if you're a woman, especially if you're a black woman, like there's layers of extra pressure and prejudice that you then have to phase into. And the fact that she's able to do that and go, I'm listening and I'm going to actually interact with you and reciprocate. And we're going to enter into generative dialogue. That says so much about the caliber of her well, her willingness to engage in the caliber of her her character. And I think there's also that question around, and maybe this links back into the so-called soft skills, our capacity to be able to take, take heat and kind of investigate whether the thing that we're hearing, the criticism we're hearing, is something that might have some substance to it. And then what do we do to kind of repair that? Um, and then modeling that for other people, because it's it's not an easy or comfortable thing to do to show up with vulnerability and go, okay, let's let's have a discussion. And it's not something that we're taught, I think, as, as kids. You know, it's this idea of you have to be this brand. You have to be consistent. You're not allowed to be more than one thing. You've got to be, you know, society's version of what it is to be X, Y, and Z. And if you don't conform, well, I'm sorry, game over. <laughs> I mean, that's that's such an antiquated way of envisioning the world. And I think humanity is extraordinary for its richness. And I think the more ways that we can find ways to celebrate that, um, the better off we'll be. I love that. And perhaps it is, you know, can I listen deepest when it is the most uncomfortable for me? You know, when it is about, um, you know, I, I've, I've made a mistake and I really crucially need that feedback. How can I resist mm. that urge to just, you know, give into anger or, you know, being defensive? and really, really listen to what it is that's caused that harm and that mm. upset. Um, you know, again, as we've said several times throughout this conversation, <laughs> soft skills, there's really nothing soft about them. Mm. Thank and you. And they're complicated. They, Sorry. And they, and they, they are. <laughs> yes, they're complicated and, and nuanced and, and really appreciating that. Um, before we wrap up our conversation, I'm wondering, you know, the link to your latest book we will have in the show notes as well. Would you like to just give sort of a, a 101 of that book? Because I know that people will be listening and they'll be wanting to know, how can I learn more from this really inspiring guest that you have on the show today? Oh. <laughs> Thank you. So, um, yeah, so the most recent book is called Business Unusual values, uncertainty, and the psychology of brand resilience. And it is more of a kind of deep look at what it is that's shaping changes in behavior, how we can understand and meet our deeper human needs, what that might mean in terms of consumers, employees. We look at everything from psychological safety to values to self-determination, um, resonant communication, all sorts of fascinating and interesting things. And it, I, I had the pleasure of interviewing some really wonderful folks um, for that book. So you can check that out. And if you want more of the kind of tactical, ethical, 
sort of facilitatory persuasive stuff, then that's Webs of Influence, which is the previous book. Um, but also any questions, just reach out to me on LinkedIn. Uh, it's probably the easiest place to find me. Great. And we'll make sure the link to your LinkedIn is in the show notes. Thank you so much for being generous with your time today. And we look forward to continuing to follow your trajectory. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Shifting Our Schools. If you found this episode helpful or inspiring, please make sure to subscribe and leave the team a five-star rating. If you want to learn more about the Shifting Schools team or download our free resources, head over to shiftingschools.com to see what's on offer now. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next week for another episode to keep rethinking the shifts our schools need.